Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you the cause to... One of my favorite Simpsons quotes, and I managed to ruin it. The cause of and solution to all life's problems. The most thinly veiled of all the Simpsons rep. In case you guys hadn't noticed, every single episode that we've done is a massive Simpsons reference. Just one giant Simpsons reference. Yeah, even the name of the, the episode, or at least the opening line of the episode. The opening line, the, the, we baked them all in because we're both huge Simpsons dorks. So I, I just thought that, that we hadn't used that one yet, so we probably should. <laughs> Will, how are you? I'm good, actually. Uh, I apologize, dear listeners. If I sound like I'm I'm bunged up, uh, my nose is is uh, not doing too well today. We are in the midst of a glorious couple of days of spring, and therefore everything has exploded around me. And yes. so, if I sniff, I apologize. Yes, this is this is Will's cross. Uh, one of many crosses <laughs> to bear, but uh, hay fever is uh, pretty high on the list of things that Will has to deal with. It you know it's spring here. We've had unbelievably good weather in the UK, uh, and I. We'll take whatever I can get in this country when it comes to weather. So now you guys have uh, crossed over into that 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 typical Britishism where it's gone from too hot, sorry, from too cold to too hot, and you now know, you're it's, all complaining. It's no, it's perfect for me. It's perfect. It's it's absolutely beautiful, and you know because we're a little bit of, of a more northerly latitude than you are, uh, and our clocks have gone forward. Uh, it's it's lovely and uh, and light even now here at uh, eight o'clock at night and. As a result, because I cannot bear to suppress good weather and light, I usually have my uh, very thick blinds closed to absorb the sound and my windows closed. But tonight, I have my windows open and my blinds open. So if you hear the sounds of the British summer, spring percolating through into the podcast, birds chirping, leaves rustling, children screaming, that's why. (laughs) A man yelling at a tractor. Yeah, there's been a lot of tractors lately, but here we are. I'm not. I'm going to take advantage of it. Uh, but here we are, episode 14. Episode 13 was a huge hit. Thank you very much to Paul Papa Dimitri from uh, who does layers overs with me for joining us. That was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, actually, it was. I said it while we were doing it, and after that was the most fun I've done recording. And it seems you all picked up what we were putting down. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people actually um, asked us how many drinks we were in prior to recording, and I can only vouch for myself. I, I, I had only had one drink, so I can't tell if that was the same for you guys, though. Mm, I, I'm, I can't talk for Paul either, but uh, no, actually, uh, what was I? What? Oh, I was drinking the Japanese whiskey. Like yeah, Paul was. no, I. I it, the problem is, we usually record on a Sunday night, and uh, you know, you're at the end of the weekend, and you've got Monday ahead of you, so you you may have had. A tipple or two, but no, it was it was a lot of fun, and 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 as Will said, it sounds like based on social media feedback that people really enjoyed that. So we'll definitely have to get Paul and some other guests back soon. But we had some great Twitter feedback from from people who listened to layovers and uh, caught Mastication Nation for the first time, or vice versa. Han Han, forgive me for how you pronounce your name, but is at Han Chicago. Uh, who said that he listened for the first time. He said, like layovers. Uh, and now he's hungry after listening to the Mastication Nation layovers crossover episode. Uh, and also he has a better clue of what to drink on his first, first class Emirates flight. So the first time he's going in Emirates first class. Uh, he also came back and said, uh, that I'm, we, I talked about 
I gushed about the partnership between Momofuku and JetBlue. And he said, have you guys watched the new Netflix series with David Chang and Peter Meehan called Ugly Delicious? Have you watched it? I love um, David Chang and I've watched all his uh, earlier Chef's Tables and Mind of a Chef and all that fun stuff. Um, But uh, I have not started watching Ugly Delicious yet. I know it's very, very, very good. And I like David Chang because he's very, he's, I mean, I don't, it's such a trite way of saying it, but he's very real. Like he will challenge people on everything. He doesn't pull any punches, but if someone drops some knowledge on him, he is very receptive of it and humble. And also it makes for a very, very fun drinking game, which is <laughs> you have a drink every time uh, David Chan gets the meat sweats. You like him this. so much that I actually pitched for the M episode to be Momofuku. Uh, yeah, I, um, I agree with probably 70% of what he says. I think I, I admire his tenacity. I admire the fact that he is... Uh, very real. He's definitely cut from the from the Bourdain uh, pull no punches. Template. Yeah, pull no. Well, yeah, pull no punches, and also what's the word? He believes he has principles, and I think he sticks to them for better or worse. But you know, it and the documentary series is outstanding. It focuses on a particular topic, so they have an episode on tacos, an episode on barbecue, Pizza. an episode on fried rice, an episode on home cooking, yeah. and it goes around the world. Peter Meehan is a good counterpoint to David Chang because he's sort of the booky, nerdy, ultra-foodie, passionate guy, and David Chang is the sort of maverick... Yeah, it's your classic um, comedy duo, your straight man. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I haven't watched all of them yet. Uh, I'm kind of, I don't want to go through them as all, you know too quickly. But yes, I recommend it. Thank you again to Craig McCormick uh, for his feedback. Uh, so he finally caught up on the Mastication Layovers crossover and thought it was fantastic. Uh, and got a kick out of hearing about the HK Beer, who does uh, Betsy. Uh, and Cafe collaboration, he said it felt very inside baseball, which I always thought was a bit of an American term, but I guess it travels. So Yeah, it's a good use of the vernacular. Craig, Craig, Craig has a brewery himself, so I'm, I'm glad that that, uh, that piqued your interest. Uh, and again, I, Paul and I have both said that it's been quite difficult to find Betsy lately, but uh, I hope I have an opportunity to try it again because it was it was bloody good. And and Craig followed up with another uh, tweet saying that there's a great episode of Mega Food, which on Netflix, which I'd never seen, I've never heard of that that show before. Uh, that goes through the whole airplane food manufacturing process. It's episode five, super fascinating. And I always assumed the food was making automated robots, but it's mostly all made by hand and one of our other listeners tags up on that in a second which i'll get to uh joel he he sent some very inside insider baseball information as well on uh, Ooh, on how it's this made. so um i'll get it to him in a second but my good friend um alex ostriker who um, can we just pause for a second yeah. and acknowledge the fact that alex ostriker has the coolest name in the world i used to call him the strike force but he didn't like yeah, that strike force <laughs> alex and it's not o comma striker because that's like a simpson McBain character. Yeah, no, it's it's is it Austrian? Is he? Yeah, it, it's it's of Austrian descent. It, I, I believe so. Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's O E S T R E I C H E R. Yes, but it's still cool, Alex. You can't get away from that. <laughs> at cool value name. deck on Twitter, which is a reference to the uh, Oakland Coliseum baseball stadium. Uh, oh, nice. Which um, you know, he's a massive airplane nerd. He and I talk uh, about um, you know this deliveries of of specific airlines all day when we get together. But he I had didn't a know that. 
a lot of um, plain, a lot of food for thought on the on the plane episode. So he said that the best economy class meal he's ever had is the bibimbap on Korean Air. Uh, you can customize your own meal, make it spicy, you, um, and the only heated element is the rice, which we sort of talked about in the previous episode. That that might be the golden the golden ticket there, uh, based on Paul's feedback on the Garuda flight. Um, he said the second place f- go for food goes to ANA on um, so Japanese food on ANA, uh, and it always came with rice and soba noodles. So it really seems like the the Asian airlines have got this down pat. Yeah, it that's true, and I think. And this is a sweeping generalization, but I think Asian food is more conducive to uh, being pre-prepared to an extent and then and then reserviced. It's just the rice and noodles travel well. I mean, you talked about that yeah. in the last episode. And I, I, I haven't been on Korean Air, but I echo his thoughts on ANA. I've flown on ANA a lot, both domestically in Japan and internationally, and the food was always I'd actually be interested to hear Sir Greg Barnes' thoughts on this because he's been on ANA just as many times as I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We're gonna whether you like to. Greg, I mean, Alex and I reference Greg constantly, and if you watch Tashe, you may have heard him in the background of a few episodes. But Greg's not real; he doesn't actually exist. <laughs> he's a composite he's a piece of, of software. He's a composite of all three of us: oh, yeah. Paul, Alex, and myself. And we just put an English accent on top of it. Um, Named him Greg. We'll get him on online on one of these episodes eventually. But um, our good friend Joel, who I will challenge any of our listeners is anyone more remote than joel in perth Ooh, where's talk- joel he's in, he's in perth we talked about like it's so like the oh, most he found the in and out pop-up yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so he found the in and out pop-up good, good shot. um but i would love to hear if we have anyone who is more remote from their own you know, con- you know perth is just this weird anomaly and i love i love it it's such an interesting place and i could talk about it for hours but he was saying that the um he wants Paul to be a permanent fixture on the on on uh, Mastication Nation moving forward. Uh, it's kind of hard to balance everyone's calendar, but we'll try and get him back. We will uh, definitely get Paul back because I think maybe like once once a quarter we'll we'll review all the things we ate in the sky because Paul and I have ridiculous travel schedules. Exactly. So um, he uh, Joel gave us some insight into the best and worst food he's ever had on a pl- on an airplane, and they both go to Malaysian Airlines, best uh, <laughs> which is kind of so the funny. best and worst go to Malaysian. Yeah. So Malaysia, the best. That's- was Perth, Kuala Lumpur, Perth, uh, Incredible Saute. And the worst was, I don't know, what is CJ, CJK? Jakarta. Okay, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. And then it was the it was a me, me go, goring. Me goring. And it was, it was unpalatable. And then he followed up with a picture, uh, sorry, a video from Malaysia Airlines, which is, um, it, it's always really weird to see a giant Welsh dude called Reese Williams talk in fluent. Malay, and he basically goes and talks about how they make the satay on on Malaysian Airways, and it is very, very manual, and looks just like any sort of pop up kitchen. They've got the you know the fire that they're they're ten, almost like a tandoor that they're roasting the satays over, uh, and then they're putting them into the containers to be reheated back up in the sky. But the attention to detail and the quality, you can see that they're not just half assing this. this; is a fantastic. No. Um, I think it's. A, I mean, it's important. It's there. It's. I mean, it's not there official national dish but it's something that we all in the west for better or worse associate with malaysia and indonesia and basically that part of asia so you can't serve garbage Mm -hmm. in you know you have to serve it well so this was fascinating joel thank you for both of those tweets with i want to go and try the the me goring and the satay now why glutton for punishment why would you want to go find the thing that he says the worst thing ever (laughs) uh just because i i i need to know uh, you know 
I need to know. I need to know how bad it is. But thanks again to everyone um, who tweeted in. I don't think we got to absolutely everyone while we were here all day. But uh, you know, given Alex and Paul's travel schedules, you know, keep us co- keep coming in with your best and the worst travel uh, food, whether it's in an airport, yeah. whether it's an airline, and we'll we'll tag back on it because it's such an interesting- airport. Especially, I want to know if what you've had because airport food is basically Sbarro. <laughs> but. Was- yeah. There are there are some gems around the world, and we uh, we just launched the attaché book. This is a seamless seamless segue. I'm so proud of myself, just on the fly. Um, we launched the attaché book recently for sale, and if you go to attaché-travel.net/books, just attaché-travel.net, you can put in the code mastication and get 15 percent off your copy of the book. But do me a favor loyal listener get the signed copy which is more expensive but 25 percent of the retail price not the profit of the retail price goes to the anthony nolan trust who are a charity here in the uk and they find stem cell donors and match them with people who need stem cell transplants like our brother andrew they found him not one but two perfect matches that arguably saved his life so go and get a book get the signed copy if you can deal with my scroll in the front of the book <laughs> uh it will go to a good cause it'll save a life so mastication is the promo code attachetravel.net is the the site to get it at but in researching that book i have trawled through so many airport eateries that i don't know what to do with myself i know every single airport eatery in Asia and Oceania. I, every single one of them. I know them all. And uh, the consensus is they're overall good, overall bad, overall... China? Yeah. Not good. <laughs> in fact, in Shanghai, we had to, to mix it up and say, don't even bother. Because we usually, we listed three uh, three places to eat at every airport throughout the book. These are the good places. In China, in Shanghai, not one. <laughs> Just a disclaimer saying, please don't eat here. <laughs> That's the yeah, it is depressing. But there are uh yeah, there's some incredible places. But I think the best one is in Osaka and it's a mashup between Most Burger, which is a Japan a great Japanese burger joint and Mr. Donut, which is a ethereal godlike donut chain. And they have come up with this concept restaurant where they take their the best of what they both produce and they've done a restaurant. So that's my favorite. So yes, I want to hear what you guys have found at airports. Well, as your that's wedding good. or appetite, what are you drinking today? Every time I, you ask me this question, I'm drinking something uh, from another country. But I am drinking a Curious Brew. And Curious Brew is made by Chapel Down, who are a, uh, a winery, vineyard in Tenterden. And they are arguably the best, and they're not even arguably, they are easily the best uh, of the English sparkling wine producers. They also produce non-sparkling wine. They produce 25% of the UK's uh, sparkling wine that's exported. It is very, very, very good wine. They provided the wine for uh, Will and Kate's wedding. Not mine. Not you. Not mine. My wife is also called Kate. Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And they also have these beers, which are... Excellent. They're really good. I, I'm. I would be surprised if you couldn't find this in the U.S. They're that big. It's it's a lager. Uh, you can get it on tap in most pubs around here. Probably most t- pubs in the U.K. now. It's very good. Very fresh and sharp. N- not offensive. Nice to drink cold. Really, really impressive 
one of the best loggers I've ever had coming wow. out of the UK. Well, given the fact that you usually go global with your drink and- And uh, I don't usually drink beer. And you don't usually drink beer. And now this time you were going, you know, Tenterton, which is, you know, uh, Kent and very, very close to where you are right now. Um, I, and this wasn't planned, I am going even more local. I am drinking a uh, Trumer Pils, which is a Pilsner from the Trumer Brewery in Berkeley. Uh, I could go out into my backyard, throw a tennis ball, and hit that brewery. That is They'd how probably close be they pretty are. pissed at you. Yeah, no, but also um, they would be pissed because my golden retriever would be then running into their <laughs> into their brewery trying to get the ball back. Um, but it's it's your classic. You can find it everywhere in California on the Northern California. Uh, it's your typical super crisp, nice pilsner. Um, it's it's nice. What's it called? Say it again. Trumer. T R U M M. No, sorry. T R U M E R. And I wonder if you can get into places like uh, – is Beth Moe just California? I think it's in a couple states. All I know is it's, it's not in Colorado because I tried to send some alcohol to a friend there and they were like, we don't know what that is. I'm going to put – okay. I'm going to put a conundrum out there to you, to listeners. And I want you to try and explain this to me. Brooklyn Lager. We get it over here, mm-hmm. everywhere, yep. on tap, in, in cans, it's bottles, it's available all over the shop. And I wanted my father-in-law to try it when I was in California about 18 months ago. And I went to my Bev- local BevMo and I said, oh, um, and I looked, 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 hey, I'm looking for BevMo. Oh, you in Brooklyn Lager. Looking for Brooklyn Lager. Oh, they, we don't stock it. Why? You, saw, you stock all this random stuff. Oh, they won't ship it this far. Yep. And I can tell you why if you don't know. I don't know. Uh, this is ridiculous. They ship it to England. Yep. And Alex, so uh, my favorite beer in the world is by a Canadian brewery called Sleeman's, and it's Sleeman's Honey Brown, and you can get that in a lot of places in London. And I was living in Boston, and that's not too far from the Canadian from the Canadian border, and you cannot get it for love nor money. And I contacted them, and I'm like, hey, why um, can't I get this? I can get this in England, but I can't get it just across the border in America. And amongst other things, they basically said, have you ever noticed that you can? there's a bunch of East Coast beer you can't get on the West Coast? Import and tax duties across state lines are more expensive than shipping it to another country. Is that really what it is? That's sad. Yeah, that's why American craft brewing only sort of exploded over the last like 10 years. And you had these big companies, these big beer companies that were, were owning, buying up everyone else because they were paying for the distribution. So the anheuser Bushes of the world were paying for the small guys to get around. Um, there is a Brewers Alliance. I can never remember the actual name of it um, out of the Pacific Northwest that does a lot of like – they're like Red Hook and Emission and a lot of really big names on, on the on the Northwest um, that sort of band together and do a co-op to help mitigate those costs. But it comes down to money. It's more expensive to send it across the country than it is to send it to England. Uh, dear listeners, if I'm completely talking out, out my butt, tell me. Um, but that's what I've been told by a brewer. That's a bummer because it's a good beer. Anyway, oh, that's just that's just put me in the back. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's talk about some good stuff. Like, uh, yeah, what's the best thing you've eaten since I you uh, last recorded? And I know you're you've been traveling. And um, I did put a little note in our uh, little line in our notes that you have no idea what I'm referring to. Yeah. So I want you to tell the donut story, and you're going to be like, "What the hell's the donut story?" Yeah, I, I put a note in the notes saying <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it involves your two sons being yes, I... not great to each other, and how a donut is central to the story. Oh yeah. Uh, so my family uh, and I went on vacation, and we have a 14 week old as you guys know 
uh, and we went to Korea and Japan for Easter vacation, which was a huge success. And it's Seoul was a revelation. I've never been there before, but that's a great place. And I'll talk about that in a, in a second. But my my sons are wonderful boys uh, when they're by themselves, but together they're like all brothers who are you know about two years apart, and they're just complete bastards to each other when they're bored. And they'd spent all day uh, the day before being bastards to each other. And so I gave their mom a break and took them out. This was in Seoul, and we we walked around and we found a Dunkin' Donuts, which is actually more like a Mr. Donut, and there's a complicated ownership story there, which we'll save for another episode. But they do they do great work. Not that Dunkin' doesn't, but Mr. Donut is better. And in Japan and in Korea, the way it works is, and I don't know, I haven't been into enough Dunkin' Donuts in America to know if this is how it works there, but you basically, when you come into the store, you pick up a tray, you put down a piece of um, tissue paper, and you grab a pair of tongs. And then all the donuts are available and you just take the tongs and you put the donuts you want on a tray. So my eldest son told me exactly when he wanted to pick it out. My youngest son has some decision-making problems uh, and hummed and hawed and hummed and hawed and hummed and hawed. And his brother was distracted. So I grabbed what I thought he said, got to the register, cut back. And obviously I got the wrong one. Of course I got the wrong one. And he was very, very, very upset. And his older brother sacrificed the donut that he wanted, which his brother also wanted. Uh, and, and he gave it to, to Jack, my youngest son. He, he looked at me and said, he shrugged and said, it's just a donut. And he's my brother. Which I and think I is like, amazing. I think it's- I would never do that for either of my brothers. <laughs> I know I'm here. <laughs> um, I just think that so perfectly sums up the, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, no, here, here's the question. Was Jack placated? Was Jack happy? And- oh, yeah, but yeah, it's exactly what is it was exactly the donut that he wanted. And and Jack is a little bit more particular about his food. My eldest son, Luke, it loves food. He he will eat anything. Like I've got pictures of him in Osaka eating takoyaki, which is the battered octopus balls with the dried fish flakes and mayonnaise on them, just sitting in a street food stall, chowing down with a bunch of people gathered around him, looking at this freaky white kid <laughs> uh, eating all these wonderful things that are, are you know, So basically, the, the, what we're, fried dough can save the world. Yeah. No, he's just an adventurous, adventurous eating kid, and I appreciated the gesture. But yeah, I didn't. So that's a good story. I'm glad you made me tell that. But uh, so actually, before what I tell you what I ate, I'll, oh, I, I want to know what you ate, and I'll come back to what I ate. So I always get torn between whether it's something I, I, I made or something I ate out. And I'm conscious of what I did last time. So, you know, I did make some great stuff. The grills, it's grill season. So I made some fantastic uh, tri-tip with uh, couscous and, and vegetables. And that was great. But the best thing I've eaten recently was actually only about two days ago with um, our good friend Keith. And I had, um, amongst other things, I had uh, sweet, potato, sweet potato gnocchi. Um, and it was in with a brown butter sage sauce. And it was just really, really good. That sounds good. really good. And even though it's uh, getting warm, it's still cold in the nights enough to really appreciate it. And it was at Redford Keith's place. Um, and it was just fantastic. It was just perfect pillows of, of gnocchi. And I just, you know, sometimes don't like it. I find normal gnocchi a bit not bland but the sauce covers it up and but the flavor of the actual sweet potato just came through and it was stellar wow that sounds amazing yeah um i yes as you said i w- we were in korea and we did osaka and and tokyo as well as seoul but so in japan and korea i drank gallons and gallons and gallons of pakari sweat <laughs> if that's my jam uh 
I th- but I, you know we had I ate kimchi so much. Uh, kimchi stew, just kimchi and the banchan that they give you at every single meal. We had tons of Korean barbecue because the places are everywhere and it's super cheap and super laid back. You know, you're like you're sitting on plastic chairs at a card table and then there's the extractor fan over every table and you just go and help yourself to more of the of the banchan. So as much kimchi as you want and then you know, pork neck and um, pork fillet, which you do on a barbecue or beef in, at a different restaurant. But we had real deal Korean fried chicken, as Paul talked about in the last episode. And it was so friggin' good. <laughs> it's hard to say, like, oh, why is it better than just normal fried chicken? Because it's Korean. And yeah. it was, it was just, everything was perfect about it. And we there was a joint, like maybe, I don't know, Three minutes walk from our uh, Airbnb in Hongdae, if you know if you know Seoul, uh, in Mapugo, and we j- we went there twice, uh, and it was just and you get like you get a side of daikon radish to take the edge off, um, and we had you could get like um, not too spicy and then insanely spicy, which my wife and I really liked, but just oh, it was so 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 good, and everything in Korea and everything in Seoul is. So super reasonable like you never feel like you're getting gouged even an fc salt game i took my my son to my eldest son like it was 10 bucks for a ticket two bucks for a beer 10 bucks for a for a fc salt t-shirt that's crazy and, yeah and like good food that you could bring into the stadium all these food trucks around like i had a kimchi slaw burger oh, i just i loved it I, I cannot wait to go back to seoul and, and eat some more of their delicious food and it was hard to make that decision of all the stu- stuff that we ate on that trip but that was i think probably the best yeah and we, like i said we could do an entire episode on your travels so that's why we want to get paul back yeah. um but something uh i mentioned keith earlier and something i encourage you dear listeners to do if you have had something stellar take a photo send it to us and we'll feature it in this in this section but keith um tweeted in saying that the best thing he had uh, this week was ramen. Um, ramen has exploded in, in San Francisco. There are multiple places where you have to line up at like four in the afternoon to get dinner service. And they're just like crushing through the amount of people that they're trying to get out. But like it's uh, it, it seems to be the last six months to a year. It's really exploded. Uh, and Keith says that um, for our, our episode, we, we have to there's no there's no choice. We have to do ramen. I, I think I'm with him on that. So let's just let's just pencil it. Okay, good. Well, that is you know everything we've been up to. Everything that uh, your your travel's been far more exciting. We we recapped the uh, L episode of layovers, um, but we are on to M. And I sent out a tweet a few days ago teasing uh, this episode, and, and most of you got it. Um, but Alex, what are we doing for the M episode? You know, mustard. We're doing mustard. Um, which is great because I friggin' love mustard. I love mustard in every possible form. When I was researching this, uh, there was a throwaway comment that it's used in the cuisine of India, basically the Indian subcontinent, Mm -hmm. to all uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and and everybody therein, the Mediterranean, northern, southern, and southern Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, and eastern Europe, Asia, the Americas, and Africa. And probably Australia. Well, yeah, Australia uh, and, and, and like, Australasia. Yeah. Um, so it's among one of the most widely used and popular condiments 
in the entire history of everything amazing. If we have any South American listeners, I'd be interested to know if it's popular there. Probably. But I mean, like, I think, I, I mean, I'd be interested to know how mustard got to Brazil. I mean, how mustard got to Japan and China, which we know that, you know, if you've ever gone to an American uh, Chinese restaurant, they often have Chinese mustard. I didn't have time to sort of like follow that exploration but i'd love to see how it got there and fire where yeah absolutely and i think well do you like mustard absolutely but but i like certain kinds more than anything and i did throw some editorial into our clues and i said that in a tweet that the english do it best and i i stand by that statement like there are a million different different types of mustard but as you'll see there's a reason that i love english mustard more than anything else and it's because i love the pain (laughs) It's funny, we did kale, which was very interesting for a plant that is so derided. Um, but as I mentioned, it's part of this this brassica family of um, of plants that included, you know, different kinds of greens, cauliflowers, cabbages, so on and so forth. But it also includes the mustard family and, um, you know, mustard greens. A lot of people eat the, the greens of a mustard plant. For the sake of this episode, what we're talking about is the mustard condiment. We can touch upon, you know, the concept of mustard as a plant, but we'd be here all day if we tried to do both. But, you know, the mustard seeds, which are the seeds that the plant grow out of, is what creates the mustard condiment. And that's that's what we're talking about here. But can we just pause and, and acknowledge the fact that mustard is, as a plant is wonderful because you can eat the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i trying to think about how many other plants that cilantro slash coriander is one of those there aren't that many i mean you can eat the whole thing you can eat the the, the seeds are what you make mustard as a condiment out of but mm-hmm. you can also eat the leaves and the flowers and there aren't that many that you can you can do that too I think like celery i mean so first of all mustard seeds are spice spice is the seed or uh, the seed the pod or the dried fruit and occasionally the bark uh, of a plant whilst the herbs are the leaves. So herbs is easy because you can say leaves. That's easy. That's nice and easy. Spices can be, um, you know, seeds like we're talking about now, um, sesame seeds. Then you got stuff like um, star anise, which is actually a dried fruit, which is technically a seed. You got cinnamon um, and cassia, which is actually what you're probably eating if you eat cinnamon in america uh it's more pungent but not technically cinnamon and that's the bark of a tree uh you got pods like vanilla those are just they look like green beans when they're not dried but those are also spices whilst on the herb side you've got stuff like um you know your cilantro you've got your basil and those are just the mint etc and those are just the the leaves of those plants so that's the big definition there spice basically how we use it culinarily is that uh, it has to have a volatile oil that we like the flavor of so if you heat break crush mix with a liquid to extract um, a spice so it actually gives off something that is uh, very pungent very volatile but also very ephemeral when you've cracked it and started the enzymatic process uh, unless you bring in some sort of stabilizer you lose a lot of spices um, pungentness very quickly that's why anything in your cupboard that is ground that's been there for more than three months throw it away just go get buy more if you can if you can grind your own do it yourself. I have to get rid of most of my spice cabinet then. Pretty much. Um, there are some variations on this. And actually, funnily enough, mustard is one of the ones that you can keep ground for indefinite. Um, and I'll talk about that further along. But mustard as a condiment, 
you know, we, we know that mustard has been grown for 1800 years. We found it in the Indus Valley, which is where, you know, in, in India, which is why, you know, it's popular in, in the subcontinent. But the idea of actually, a, a it as a condiment is, is pretty much all tracked back to the Romans. And around the fourth or the fifth uh, century is when we start seeing the first recipes of where mustard seeds are being used to cracked and put into some sort of, um, oil, vinegar, or liquid, that's at a base level, all a mustard condiment is, is is mustard seeds and some variety of wholeness mixed with the liquid. The variations beyond that is, and the kind of mustard you're using is the only real difference that you get. Um, But at a very basic level, it's a very simple thing. Which is, I think, what's so beautiful about it. And also, I mean, what is so wonderful is that you have this base formula, if you will, that's then, as you say, riffed upon and tinkered with and branched off geographically, demographically, historically into all these different varieties throughout the ages and generations that have created this really broad palette of mustard products that we can see on our shelves all over the world that are almost always very different. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, let's dive into the etymology a little bit here. Um, I did some research and found some certain root words, and, and you feel like you might have a different approach on this. Mine's better. Yours might be better, but <laughs> language drifts. The original root word can be traced back to two Latin words from my research, uh, must and ard, and those are based on two Latin words that I'm not going to try and pronounce. And it literally translates to... Hot must, as in the must the person puts out, or uh, a must of like, you know, a a strong, powerful scent, or flaming uh, instead of hot, or, you know, pungent uh, must. And so it's basically describing the reaction that you get with mustard or the smell you get with mustard. Um, But by all means, try try and see if this other one is more. Yeah, I love, when I was looking at this, I found another angle, and they're not. They don't contradict each other, but the name coming from Mustum Ardens in Latin, which means burning wine, uh, which sounds like a urinary infection. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, re- referring, obviously, to the flavor that that spicy – it's not even spicy. That's not the right it's word. It's heat. Uh, yeah, um, when you mix – but they, the way that they originally made it was – or one of the original incarnations of mustard was taking the crushed mustard seeds and mixing them with the juice of unfermented wine grapes or just grape juice. Mm-hmm. And actually that's, that's like, if you, you can trace a line back from, from Dijon mustard, because they still do that. They mix it with white wine, uh, which I think is rather lovely, but I, so they're basically saying the same thing. It's basically this hot funk yeah. that you get, uh, when you take the the whatever acid you use and you mix it with these the crushed um, the mustard seeds. If we ever come up with a uh, with a with a food podcast uh, music album, it's going to be called Hot Funk. <laughs> uh, hot, <laughs> hot mustardy funk. Hot mustard funk. Yeah. Um, but, sorry, that just threw me for a loop. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> but the you you touched upon it there a little bit with Dijon and how they used to use fermented non fermented grape juice and now they use uh, white wine um, and and a big factor there is the uh, the acidity level and acid plays a big part in mustard making on on sort of setting the heat or the the shelf life if you will um, those are kind of 
diametrically opposed to each other um, based on different kinds of mustard. You can often have something that's really, really potent that's not going to stay potent for a long time, or you can have something that's not as hot but will stay the same for for a long time. And, and we'll get into that to it in a second. But um, you know, we we are using this word heat and hot. And anyone who's you know ever had some Coleman's English mustard knows exactly what we're talking about here. But a, a peppercorn by its sorry sorry peppercorn a uh, mustard seed by itself is not spicy or not hot. It needs to be cracked and mixed with a liquid. So technically, I guess if you chewed on a on a on a mustard seed and the the water in your mouth could cause this reaction. But what happens is that um, there's a compound in there which mixes with which is also which is also found in mustard, horseradish, cabbage, and um, what's the other one I'm looking for? Japanese people love it on sushi. Wasabi. Thank you. And wasabi as well. It's the same uh, compound that is released when it's when it's crushed and creating a mustard oil. You need to understand that the enzymatic process, which makes it hot or 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 not as hot as always pungent, um, is impacted by temperature of of the liquid you're working with as well as the acid. So. If you were to mix a mustard seed or crack a mustard seed with warm water, you're going to get a fairly strong uh, mustard heat. Again, it depends on the kind of variety of mustard seed you're using. Yellow mustard seeds are the least potent. Uh, Brown and black are the strongest. But if you mix it with cold water, which is if you've ever looked on the back of a Coleman's mustard powder pack, it says to do, uh, the cold water does not deter the enzymatic action. So it goes zero to 60 real, real quick. And that is going to basically give you a burning sensation you're going to feel all day in your mouth. Um, and, the- le- well, and I think it's important to differentiate because we're talking about quote unquote spiciness, but there's very, there's a very different category here that we're, we're talking about pungency. Pungency, as Will alluded to a moment ago, is the difference between getting smacked in between the eyes by a two by four horseradish, uh, wasabi, mustard. It feels like it's behind your nose and someone's pinching. And it's amazing. It's the, it's the best kind of pain as far as I'm concerned. Your eyes water, your nose runs versus the chili pepper capsation driven heat that you get on your lips and on your tongue from 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 a chili pepper or a wing or something that, that that those are completely different things. So from a physiological point of view, the the capsaicin reaction is almost like deadening your uh, your taste buds. It's actually causing a pain a sensation to be sent to the brain. Whilst um, mustard, it's actually much more obvious it's um so mustard oil and we touched upon this in the in the tweet that like you know mustard gas was used in the first world war and is can kill people but mustard oil uh can cause burning or blistering when it comes in contact with the skin so like it has a physical reaction like if you put a chili pepper on your arm like the skin like the the seeds it's gonna you're gonna feel it but it's not gonna cause any physical damage to your body um, yeah. Whenever you hear people about people yeah. getting sick or or you know ripping their esophagus because of of a chili burger or whatever, it's because they're having a visceral reaction to the the, the spiciness that's causing damage by like retching or coughing. Whilst mustard, it does that itself because it yeah. strips away yeah. a lot of things. 
Absolutely. And I saw you there, there are two very separate things and, and the, the capsation, the chili pepper stuff you can me- measure on the Scoville scale. You cannot do that with mustard. They're totally separate mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you don't like chili peppers, you're not going to like mustard. They are different things, but I, I much prefer the burn and, and pain or discomfort to, as, to, as ephemeral and temporary as it is of, of mustard than I do of, of chili peppers. I think it's, it's wonderful. But I, so I agree. So you, what you're saying is that, you know, you, you'd love it for the kick, but are there any mustards that you like for the taste of mustard? I, you know, I love, I love almost all mustards. I love Chinese mustard. I love, I, I do love some Coleman's English. I use that a lot. Uh, English mustard in general. I love, American mustard, mm-hmm. absolutely love it on a hot dog. It's impossible to beat. So I love French mustard, Dijon, or smooth. So you, uh, you kind of touched I upon the fact, All and, of it. and you, you've mentioned a lot of them. The four biggest by volume, I'm not talking about like whether or not they're the best or not, but the four biggest broad categories by, by, by consumption are French, American, German, and English. Um, the American one's interesting because it does come fire all three of them technically. Um, but your French's, and I'm not talking about French's, the American company, which is confusing. Um, f- your typical French mustards, Alex talked about earlier, your, your classic Dijon's, um, which are your very smooth. They use brown peppercorns ground to a paste. They used to use, uh, unfermented, uh, uh grape juice. Now they almost exclusively use white wine. It is more acidic and has more vinegar in it, which means that it's not as strong as a lot of other uh, mustards. And so it, it, it's able to set and stay this sort of background, medium, not really too hot, great as a side, great in, in um, vinaigrettes, great in, in a lot of different applications. It's sort of the the culinary workhorse of the, of the mustards. And although they do whole grain, which is slightly crushed in a vinegar and water uh, solution as well, uh, if you're thinking French, most people think of Dijon and most think of people think of one brand in the U.S. at least, uh, Grey Poupon, who were two different dudes. Grey and Poupon were two guys that got together and, and created their... And a traffic light in the 1980s. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think about is Wayne's World. Excuse me, do you have any yeah. Grey Poupon? <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. I like that. I mean, I've been to Dijon. I've, I've had it there. It's obviously... It's gone a bit sort of um, caricature in Dijon itself, especially for aimed at tourists. But that that unripe grape juice, mm-hmm. the acidity of that is 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 fantastic. And yeah, I, we use a lot of whole grain French at home in cooking and making um, sauces. It gives a sort of pungency that's not that, but also it's a, a quite umami as well, which I rather yeah, like. Yeah, I was going through our fridge before the episode and looking at the 1,700 different varieties of mustard we have in the house. And the ones that are near the bottom of the Dijons, the ones that are not really used too much are the whole grain. I think I think I like whole grain uh, just on the side, and, and really I, I prefer it to be cooked into something, Dijon. It's good on a sandwich. I think it's yeah. good on a ham and cheese uh, uh, English cheddar sandwich. I, I really like doing that. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, so that's your, your classic French that most people are used to. Um, we can circle back to application. Actually, yeah, you just touched upon it there. Dijon's great in everything. Uh, as I said, I think it's good, it's good with, with sandwiches. It's good in vinaigrettes. It's good in um, sauces, especially. 
and, and it's a salt it's a solid emulsifier which we'll get onto in, in, in a bit about how it can be used to help in a lot of other culinary applications uh but jumping on to the next big powerhouse uh american mustard which i know you can get in england but it's a bit rarer in america it is the second most used condiment out there besides ketchup you know it's your classic super yellow no real funk on it it's the i hate to tell you this but it is utterly ubiquitous in the uk now that's sad um no it's good come on i don't like you it i do not like on a hot dog come on okay well yeah that's not terrible but like i find that it's just it's not it's like i feel the tickle where's the slap like you know it's just like i i understand that it's mustard but i'm not understanding where the heat is no that that you're missing the point the point is the acidity <laughs> the point is the 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 acidity in in contrast to the savory hot dog, I you get cannot that. have a hot dog without American mustard. I I, under, I understand its place in society. It I love it. It gets its color it. from from turmeric. Actually, that, that it is it does use yellow mustard seeds, but it does use turmeric, which is a fairly common accompaniment to a lot of mustards. Um, and, and it was first used, first seen at the 1904 World's Fair, and there was a guy. Because the most famous brand in America for uh, American style mustard, unfortunately, is called French, and so it's it gets a little confusing when you ask for French mustard and they bring out the hot dog mustard. Um, guy called Robert Timothy French is the person that's responsible for the for the French mustard. And as Alex, Alex- I heard, I read it was George J. French. Oh. Oh, maybe we've got some some uh, fact checking to do on this one. Oh, and no, they're brothers. Never mind. No, well, there you go. Well, yeah, one that's of- nice. <laughs> Speaking of brothers, uh, our our brother Andrew, he loves Amer- French. I know. Mustard. Back when you couldn't get it in England, you we, we, he still loves it. Yeah, we have to bring it over. He puts it in his coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Rumor has it. Rumor right? has it. But yeah, Alex, Alex said it's it's your. You're quintessential for burgers. You're quintessential for hot dogs. It goes on. It's it's how you make Kenji Kenji Lopez out the, the culinary god uh, talks about it a lot. It, it's it's an ingredient in in potato salads, barbecue sauces. It's it's Americana yes. in a condiment. Yes, and I think that's that's fine. It should be preserved. It should be celebrated. Yep. And then the other American variation I want to talk upon talk touch upon real quick is honey mustard, which is just a variety of mustard mixed with honey, and is usually used as a dip for chicken fingers or you know French fries or you know you find it everywhere. And that I cannot stand. Really disgusting i don't i i don't mind it it's not my favorite condiment i'm gonna go with the ranch pretty much every time um so the american as you can see it's sort of a bastardization of a couple different culture countries they use the french style but then use it in a german application on a lot of stuff like with the um potato salad they will use american style mustard in a potato salad which comes from germany so it's kind of all over the place um the next big one is german I don't know why, but when I think mustard, I often think about the Germans and uh, baked, not baked goods, but like starch. Um, You know, they love it on their pretzels and their style is, it's kind of split geographically. So a lot of German style mustards are a little bit more spicy than the French Dijon style, but can get hotter depending on what they're using it for. But Bavarian style that because of the beer hall and the sort of um, Oktoberfest pervasiveness uh, becomes more is more well known um, is is sweeter and often um, you know made more sweet with honey or even applesauce. Um, it's not 
if you go to Germany, that's only popular in that region of the country, whilst it's a fairly mustard in the rest of the country is a bit hotter. So be careful if you're ever going to Germany thinking you're going to get the stuff that, you know, you've had in a Bavarian style beer hall, um, you know, lots of grains in there rather the whole grain rather than like this super hot stuff. You know, German German mustard is okay. I don't use it as much in my cooking as, as some of these other guys, but it's still tasty. Yeah, I, I I was in Cologne. Was it the end of 2016 or beginning of 2017? And I went to a uh, I was by myself. I went to a, a traditional Cologne pork restaurant. You get a big thing of pork knuckle. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, potatoes. yeah. Potatoes. Yeah. Oh, divine! Absolutely divine. Uh, I think it was run by one of the big breweries. Anyway, uh, and they gave you this big old bowl of 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 German mustard, which was it was perfect with pork. Was it hot? Absolutely perfect. It was. Uh, you know, it was it was closer to uh, whole grain French than than anything I would I would compare it to, but it was bloody delicious. It was per it was the perfect accompaniment, not just to the pork, but to the potatoes as well. Nice and the beer. And and so the final one, uh, my personal favorite, and I think I've ascertained it's also Alex's personal favorite is uh, is English mustard and t- Chinese mustard is my personal favorite. But- really? Oh, interesting. We don't touch on it, but just because it's it is not used most people don't they already have so many great yeah and most people don't have it at home they just bring like get it from the takeaway and and, you know english mustard by volume is is you know one of the big bad boys um and so to to quote the one-time power punk kings of uh music some 41 uh you know you got english mustard it's all filler it's all sorry. It's all killer, no filler, and it is one of these things that will just blow the back of your head off. And I just love it. Uh, unlike the other ones we've talked about, um, you can get it in paste form. But most people that I know would suggest buying the Coleman's mustard. It comes in the bright yellow pack uh, tin, and it's powdered mustard. And it's been it's been dried. It's been mixed with a couple other things to stabilize it. But what you do is you're defining how hot this thing's going to be. And on the back of it, it says mixed with cold water. And that means the enzymatic process is not going to be slowed too much. And you're going to get it's going to you know really blow the back of your head off in about 15 minutes. That's how long the enzymatic process takes. And then you're done. You can put this on whatever you want. Uh, the classic in England is to put it on. Uh, on, on ham, but I put it on sausages. I put it on uh, on roast beef. I put it on on sandwiches. Anything where I want to sort of feel like I've been maced in the face. That is what I use it for. I love it. I love it too. We go through tins and tins and tins of it. It's been a staple of you know, Coleman's. I think is they're not the only ones, but they're probably the most famous and ubiquitous. And like Spool said, you can get it in these in the cans. And we 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 use tons of it. I love. The potency of it, I think it's uh, it, it's fantastic. I I make uh, a deviled chicken when I'm feeling lazy, which the sauce is literally creme fraiche or heavy cream, depending on how much you feel like you hate yourself that evening. Uh, curry powder and Coleman's mustard powder, and you just sort of reduce that with a little bit of white wine, and then put um, uh, bone in, skin on chicken thighs into it. That's bloody delicious, but it's the most versatile thing, but it's also the most wonderful in its simplicity. It's been a staple of our grandmother's uh, larder for as long as I can remember, and I think probably her grandmother and her grandmother. Yeah, our our, our grandmother makes one of the classic 
rotational dishes is gammon, uh, which is, you know, a type of ham. And she will, she'll bust out the, I don't know from what year, Coleman's powder uh, that still has some kick to it. And she will, you know, mix it up beforehand and, and she likes it hot. She likes it very, very pungent. So uh, I think we would sort of weaned on it and that's why we love it so much. But you know, it's, it's just a little lovely, lovely little um, tie back here. In 1926, Coleman's bought French's. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that still the case? For, or they For $750,000. No. So there was, yeah, Coleman's used to own French's mustard in America. So that's that's rather nice. No, uh, Coleman's is owned by Unilever. Of course it is. Just Everybody like everybody owned else is owned by Unilever. But yeah, Col- Coleman's is, is fantastic. It's It's got that that classic potent mustard taste. Although speaking of our grandmother, she came over to lunch recently and I'd made lamb and I, you know, I wanted to make sure she had everything she needed. And I offered her, I said, you know, would you like some, some mustard? And she looked at me with incredulity and said, mustard on mutton only for gluttons. (laughs) I've never heard her say that. Yeah, I, I don't even know. Mustard with mutton is the sign of a glutton. And I, I don't know what that means, um, but I think um, it's it's an old saying about uh, you're supposed to mint sauce, obviously, with lamb in the UK, which is just fucking gross. Uh, that that the working man, quote unquote, couldn't afford that in the olden days, so they would have mustard instead. So uh, there you are. Granny's just dropping some uh, some some classist yeah. nonsense on us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so you know, I, for us, it's my favorite. I, I I would say probably second for me is is one of the French styles. Uh, a good Dijon for me just works so well. Um, and and much like our honey episode, I didn't know this until until recently in doing research for this episode. But mustard will last forever. Yeah, mustard has is full of superpowers, and this is I love this that it really can it can last indefinitely. It's got antibacterial properties. You don't have to refrigerate it. It won't grow mold or mildew or anything that'll kill you. It'll turn brown. And I have a I have a jar of uh, of Dijon mustard which I got in Dijon, which has this brownish scum uh, crust. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because of oxidation. But all you have to do to make it good is add wine. Which is basically my personal life motto. <laughs> yes, and it will or vinegar, which don't I don't that's not so much. But if you add a little uh, wine uh, into the vinegar, all that oxidation will go away. It will reinvigorate mustard that's been in your cabinet for ten years. It's extraordinary, which is amazing. Apparently, it can lose obviously a little bit of the potency and can eventually go a little bit bitter. But if we're talking about like it not killing you, that's that's a good thing to have. Yeah. I think, you know, mustard, I would be surprised if anyone listening to this was like, screw mustard, I hate mustard. It seems to be one of those things that's almost universally loved in one of its incarnations. And I think that's been the case throughout history. In fact, Pope John XXII, if I can, if I've got my Roman numerals right, loved mustards. I have no idea what era this is. Let's say a long time ago. <laughs> was so fond of mustard that he actually created a new position in the Vatican of Grand Moutardier du Pape, which is the grand mustard maker to the Pope, because he loved mustard so much and hired his nephew to do the job. 12, I kind of want 12, that. 1244. Jiminy Cricket, really? Yeah. I kind of thought it would be like 1912. 
1244. If I'm getting your... Pope John the 22nd, they are. was so fond of mustard. So now that, I don't know who's doing that now, but if there's any vacancies, I'd like to submit my resume. Yeah. Um, well, the good thing is I, th- I like that you put out this tweet ahead of the episode because a lot of people chimed in. I mean, they, a lot of people figured it out quite quickly, which is good. We're not trying to keep it a secret. Uh, and Nettie Seagoon, lovely. That's a great name. At Ned underscore Seagoon said, meat needs mustard, except lamb, Ned, as we've learned. That makes you a glutton. I'll I'll fight you on that. I, I'll I'm gonna go have some mustard on my on my lamb just to to get it. to it get written good. out of the will one more time. Paul Papa Dimitri, who we all know and love, uh, and we will have back on the show, said he's a big fan of the whole grains. As am I. I think Paul and I definitely have that in common. Germany has the best pairings, and I agree because it's the starch and the pork, which we which which we've 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 touched upon, and. The most famous Swiss one comes in a tube, and I asked him right before we came on on to record. I said, "Are you talking about? I think it's pronounced Tommy, T H O M Y, because it looks it's like a literally like a tube of toothpaste, toothpaste." And he says he loves it, and he loves that it, the fact that it comes in a tube. Didn't and then he said, "M should have been Marmite, did, but that would have just been a fight." Yeah, didn't Swiss Air or, or Crossair used to give you a small like, probably like, toothpaste tube full of? Uh, of mustard and you have to be careful or like, you know, you'd see people going off thinking it was part of the amenity kit and now it had to Hey, you know what? That's fine. Uh, I didn't, I, good, good question. Airplane people, Paul, you should, of all people, you should know the answer to that question. Ben, pit my dibber, sourdough nano progress. How's the bread coming along, man? We want to, we want updates on how this sourdough is going, but he, he pointed this out. Uh, I didn't know this. Mustard appears in white chocolate Kit Kats in Japan and tastes amazing. Of course, Japan is favorite famous for its multitude of Kit Kat flavors. I brought back and gave to our other brother uh, Sakura cherry blossom flavor Kit Kats and roasted mung bean, I think, flavor. Uh, Andrew, uh, chime in, please. I'm okay with him having those. They were pretty good. My my children like them both. And he also he made a a, a garlicky mayo. With some uh, for some Dijon mustard in it, which and sends us a picture, which looks fantastic. Hashtag grime. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I, so, so question for our listeners: When is it okay to use the word aioli instead of mayonnaise? Is there ever an appropriate time, or, or am I being uh, the uh, when you're on cafeteria friche? <laughs> okay, that's a deep cut. Yeah, South Park fan. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right. <laughs> wrapping i want to so dude let us know if you like man mustard pretty sure everybody does if you don't like mustard explain yourself uh and, but do tell us what you like what kind of mustard you like what do you like it on would you are you a glutton do you like it on mutton yes i want do you want to talk about do you want to talk about this uh we have to talk about this thing all right uh mustard is good i i, I really enjoyed this episode i love mustard i want to go and have some mustard now that's the problem with mustard Ketchup, it's okay to drink from the bottle. Mustard, you <laughs> need... No, no, never okay. <laughs> you need some kind of delivery vector, as you would say. Well, unlike uh, unlike ketchup, mustard doesn't have anything bad. Like, ketchup is just full of sugar, and there's nothing in mustard. There isn't. It's just mustard seed and maybe some white wine or vinegar, all of which is awesome, and water. Uh, so let us know about mustard. Before we move on to travels and, and the next episode... And that's going to be an interesting one. Joel Candia, at Joel Candia with a K, uh, on Twitter, uh, sent us this thing, which was actually on Have I Got News for You the other night. My wife and I just watched. 
about the story of the MasterChef uh, contestant here in the UK and the whole chicken rending. Did you follow this up? Did you did you see this? No. So so are they? The, is it MasterChef UK guys? That, that's who mm-hmm. they are, right? Because I don't follow that that too closely anymore. Um, but Joel messaged this to us and was sent me the link. And and from what I understand, and, and forgive me if I'm missing some of the details here, that the the judges of uh, MasterChef UK berated a contestant for their chicken randang randang uh for not being crispy it's never been crispy and i don't know what they've been eating but uh they have been receiving i guess the closest thing you can get to in death threats in uh uh, for for culinary faux pas from all around the world yeah they they disqualified this contestant who was malaysian for they said oh it's you know it's inedible because the the chicken isn't crispy and the sauce is all over the skin and I can't eat the sauce because it's on the skin. And as Will said, it's never supposed to be crispy in chicken rendang. And this caused such a furor in Malaysia that the prime minister got involved and said, yeah, those guys don't know what they're talking about. And someone said, someone tweeted out, this is when I got news for you the other night saying, uh, I want to find the MasterChef judges and rendang their heads. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, I mean, what has been... Has there been any fallout from... I don't know, actually. It's a good question. Probably not. I think I said... Uh, I think I tweeted back to, to Joel that basically I like my international food as much as anybody else. But if I have a weird way I want to do it, I'm not going to tell somebody from that country. I think I said something along the lines of, like, I love pizza, but I'm not going to tell an Italian that I'm dipping it in ranch dressing because he might punch me. Like, it's fine if you like – you want to try a chicken rendang crispy, but that's not the way it is. And that's what the – And I think also more importantly to tell tell somebody that that it's quote-unquote wrong the way they did it is – is ridiculous. And I think, I don't think this person got a chance to defend themselves. And, you know, going back and, and, and closing out the show with a reference to where we started about, uh, ugly delicious, the, the thread that runs through that whole show is about authenticity and whether or not that's real. And if, uh, if it's a good thing in food, if it's a bad thing in food, where is authenticity? Okay. And where is it, where is sticking to tradition more of a hindrance than a help? And I think in this instance, it was a fundamental lack of understanding about a dish and trying to uh, project our own standards for a particular way of preparing a component of a dish, not just the dish. Mm. Well, folks, thanks for listening. And if there's any other burning social, political, food-related articles you want us to talk about, feel free to send them our way. But as Alex mentioned, uh, the next episode is... N. So if you have any suggestions, uh, we'll we'll take a look at them. I'm racking my brain right now and nuggets like <laughs> nuggets. There it is. Yeah, we'll get we'll get we'll get the the uh, the kids to host this one and uh, yeah, they can talk about. Uh, it. Yeah, I do let us know because I can't think of anything for N right now. But I'm sure that as soon as we stop recording, we'll think of 58. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but until until next time, guys, eat well. 